My wife Erin and I have three girls, Lilia, Caroline, and Madeline, 14, 11, and 8. And I can remember um, the moment where I realized each of, my girl, each of my girls was experiencing anxiety for the first time. With Lilia, she was about six years old, and it was a Saturday morning, and she was going for a rec soccer league game. And I was holding her hand, and we were walking out in the field, and I looked down at her, and she looked at me, and I saw tears filling her eyes. And I said, Lilia, what's, what's wrong? And she said, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm, and then you know how anxiety works. It leapt off of her right onto me. And then I was anxious. Have I put too much pressure on her? Is this my fault? And I remember that moment with Caroline. It was a few years ago. We were watching a documentary about the Thai soccer team that was trapped in the caves. And after the movie, she was trying to explain to me how she felt. She's like, I didn't like how I felt when I was watching this. And as she explained how she felt on the inside, I realized she was explaining anxiety. And I told her, I said, that's, that's anxiety, that's worry. And she's like, I've never felt that before. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I felt so sad. And then Maddie, our 8-year-old, recently told Aaron and I that whenever she goes to gym class at school, she feels butterflies and cramps inside her little belly. Because she gets nervous because in gym class she has to stand up straight in her walker. And if she slouches, they tell her to stand up straight and, and she is feeling anxious. And there's so many things I wish I could save my girls from. <laughs> there's so many things I'm sure you wish you could, or, you could or could have saved your children from. But out of all of them, anxiety is one of the things I wish I could save them from. We live in an age of anxiety. And there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, one is there's more information than ever. The amount of information that we have is incredible. You know, in, in, in the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, 1900, the knowledge that the world possessed, the world's knowledge, they did, they did a study, and the world's knowledge was doubling at a rate of every 100 years. So every 100 years, the, uh, the, the world's knowledge was doubling. By 1945, it had shrunk to every 25 years, the world's knowledge doubles. 1982, it was as short as every 13 months, the knowledge of the world doubles, and now... It's every 12 hours. Every 12 hours, the world's knowledge doubles. We have more information than ever and less clue on what to do with it. This information is not always helping us, is it? You jump online and you have a few symptoms and you type it into WebMD and you start planning your funeral. You're like, I'm going to die. We have advancements in technology that they help us and in many ways they extend our lives, but they give us things to worry about that we never could have dreamt up years ago. The damage that we can do to other nations with a push of a button from a distance didn't exist many, many years ago. We worry about things that we used to laugh about, like robots, right? Like fighting robots used to be a funny plot line in a movie, and now it's like, is this our future? Are we going to be fighting robots someday? We live in an age of rage and, and division where everybody's drawing lines and choosing sides and tearing down people. And then we have unprecedented access to each other through social media, thinking that would give us greater community, but all it's given us is a more readily opportunity to compare our lives to other people's lives, to see all the wonderful things they're doing and all the great moments they're having and feel like we're missing out on things. And so when you add all that up, sociologists and psychologists say we are living in a time of unprecedented anxiety and worry. It's one of the defining marks of our times. 
And in this morning's passage, as we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, we get to Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus has some really powerful things to say about worry and anxiety. So if you're here this morning and you can relate to worry and anxiety, which, let's be honest, it's all of us, then Jesus has something to say to you this morning. And he shows us in this passage that we're going to read where our worries come from. And we're going to see that they come from blurry eyes, hurried lives, and disordered hearts. Blurry eyes, hurried lives, and disordered hearts. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, this is part of his Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says, do not be anxious, which, by the way, is the most cruel advice you can give to an anxious person if you have nothing else to say after that. You have now made them anxious about their level of anxiety. You've made it worse for them. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. And after he says, do not be anxious, the next verse he, ver, verb he uses is the verb look, look at. Jesus is concerned that in our anxiety and worries, there's something we won't see. There's something we'll miss, or there's something we won't see correctly. I wear contacts. I don't know if all of you know that, but I wear contacts. My left eye is significantly worse than my right eye. And contacts are a blessing, but sometimes I put the wrong contact in the wrong eye, and I'm like, what's going on in this world today? Uh, and then sometimes uh, we had our 24-hour prayer event this past weekend, and I was here, and about midnight, I was clocking out, I was leaving, I was heading home to get some sleep as other people were coming in to keep praying. And if you wear contacts, you know that if you, if you wear your contacts for too long, eventually they become a problem for you. And they start to get a little blurry. And I was driving home and I was blinking, trying to wet my contacts because my contacts, I'm normally in bed way before midnight. And so my contacts were like, why are you still using us? And, and they weren't working. And I was driving home and, and, I, and I was concerned because I couldn't see the blurry vision. When we have blurry vision, whether it's bad contacts, bad vision, or something in our way, we don't see things the way that we should. We don't see them as they are. And we actually lose our confidence and we lose our way. And Jesus is teaching us here that worry comes when we don't see things right, when we lose our perspective, um, when we mistake one thing for something else. Jesus is concerned that we're going to mistake food and clothes and drink for the essence of life. He's worried that we'll have blurry eyes. There's two things specifically Jesus is concerned we won't see right. Two things that cause us to worry. And the first thing is this. If you have blurry eyes, you cannot see what this life is actually about. Jesus' words here get our attention because he cites the world's trinity of cares. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear. One glance at TV shows and current magazines and you'll see that this is what people are thinking about. What do we wear? What do we eat? What do we drink? And Jesus asks this rhetorical question is not life more than food and body more than clothing? I'll be honest with you, the first question hung me up for a moment. 
Is not life more than food? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Jesus' point here is not to say that food and clothing have no value. Certainly, we're not meant to starve, go without, run around naked. He's not saying that being a chef or designing clothes is a waste of time or a bad job. What he's saying is that there is so much more to life than these things. And when we can't see that, when our eyes are blurred by our worry and our anxieties, we worry so much about what our clothes say about us. And maybe for you, it's not your clothes, but maybe you worry about what your job says about you what the neighborhood that you live in says about you, what your performance says about you, what your intellect, what your degrees, what your education, what your ability to make other people like you or to laugh or make people happy. Maybe you're worried about what that says about you and we obsess about getting our needs met. Jesus is saying that's not what life is actually about. And then he gives us this helpful illustration from nature. He says, look at the birds. Now, when we look at the birds, Jesus says they don't work, they don't, or they don't worry, they don't toil, they, they, they're not stressed out, and the Heavenly Father provides what they need. We do need to note that the birds, they do work for their food, right? Birds work for their food. They hunt and they gather. But Jesus' point is, is that when they go hunting and when they, gather, when they go to gather, it's there for them to be found. Speaks of God's faithfulness. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, God provides food for the birds, but he does not drop it into their beaks. And that's true for you and me also. He provides for us, but that doesn't mean we don't have a part to do. Here's my point. Jesus is prohibiting worry. He is not prohibiting work. We can't misinterpret this verse and say, well, then I shouldn't have to work. I shouldn't have to do my part. I shouldn't have to go out and provide. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's possible to work without worrying, right? It's possible to have real concerns without sinning. What Jesus is warning against is the anxious obsession over physical needs that indicate a passion for money and a distrust in the Lord. So don't confuse concern with worry and don't confuse planning with worry and don't confuse being organized with worry. Worry can include all of those things, but worry is none of those things on their own. Worry is ultimately believing that everything I need depends on me. Everything I need depends on me. You can't see with blurry eyes what life is really about, and we'll begin to build our lives on things that can't actually satisfy us. The second thing that Jesus says that you can't see when your eyes are blurry is you can't see what your life is worth. I love the question right in the middle of the passage. After he talks about the birds, he says, are you not worth more than they? Some of you would do well to write that verse on a card somewhere, put it in your car, hang it on your fridge, put it in your bathroom mirror, just that question, are you not worth more than they? Think about this. If God provides for the birds, who are beautiful works of creation, but birds do not bear the image of God, you bear the image of God. Birds do not have eternal souls. You have eternal souls. And yet if God will provide for birds, why would he forget us? Those that bear his image, those for whom the Son gave his life, those whom the Holy Spirit is pursuing for relationship and for restoration. How could God forget you? Are you not worth much more than the birds? And then he goes and talks about the grass of the fields or the wildflowers. And here the contrast between us and the illustration is even more extreme. Not only do wildflowers not bear God's image like humans do, not only did God not breathe life into wildflowers like he does into us, but they're barely even here. 
That's the point of this illustration. He says they're here today and tomorrow it's thrown into an oven for fuel so that people can make food. And if God clothes the wildflowers that are here for just a day, how much more will he care for you, an eternal being who will live forever? And so when our eyes get blurred, we can't see what life is about. We can't see what we are worth. And our lives fill up with worries and anxieties. The second thing, the second source of worry is hurried lives, hurried lives. Uh, our, our pastoral staff is reading through this book right now by Tyler Staten. It's called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. We're just a couple chapters in, but it's a wonderful book. He's a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. And in this book, in chapter two, he talks about how the clock, the light bulb, and the iPhone has changed our world. The clock, the light bulb, and the iPhone. And as a result, where we are today in this world, he writes these words. Mental health professionals have termed a phrase called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. It's a behavioral pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiety. Like you're never on time. Like there's always something else. Like you're constantly being pushed from thing to thing. Like you can never rest. In a society that prizes efficiency and productivity above all else, in a society that uses time like a tool rather than a limit, hurry is no longer an occasional necessity. Hurry is the new normal. And Michael Zigarelli of Messiah University in Pennsylvania, he did a five-year study on 20,000 Christians in the United States, and you know what he identified as the number one distraction from life with God? Busyness. He said busyness is the number one thing in American Christians today that keep them from having the life with God that they were created to have. There's a story of a young pastor who went to a, a, a well-known uh, Christian philosopher and writer named Dallas Willard, and he said, hey, I'm a young pastor. You're an experienced pastor. Please, what do I need to do to stay spiritually healthy in the ministry? And Dallas Willard thought for a second and said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, I realize this is about the most countercultural thing that can be said right now because all of us live lives that are pretty full. We're all moving pretty fast. And yet Jesus, as we continue this passage in verse 31, he again repeats his command, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Even the way that Jesus phrases those questions back to back to back like that indicates this sort of hurriedness of life. What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How are we going to provide? When are we going to get there? When are we going to leave? Verse 32, for the Gentiles, the Gentiles here describe non-Jews, those who don't have a relationship with God. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. He's saying worldly people run from thing to thing, seeking after it all. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, Greco-Roman gods, the gods that the Gentiles would have worshipped, they made humans suffer although they could take away suffering if you were to bring them the right gift, a gift that would restore their favor. And so it was logical for pagans, for Gentiles, to worry so much because they had these gods where they never knew if, if the gods were going to punish them, if the gods were going to reward them. They never knew if their gift was acceptable. But our Father, Jesus says, he doesn't demand gifts, he grants them. He knows what we need. 
And yet we live these lives at these paces that are unsustainable. My friend, Pastor Doug Fields, told me years ago, and I've never forgotten this, a busy life is no cure for a dry soul. You cannot busy yourself into wholeness. You cannot create enough activity and productivity in your life to make your soul whole. In fact, it will have the exact opposite effect. Now, why are we so busy and why are we so hurried? I think one of the reasons is because we all want to seem important. I tell you how many times I walk into meetings with other pastors and I'll walk up and I'll say, hey, pastor, how you doing? How's everything going? And 90% of the time, the answer is this. Oh, it's, we're busy. We're so busy. I'm so busy. I thought it was just a pastor thing. And then I started interacting with people who aren't in local church ministry, my daughter's friend's dad's through sports and stuff. And I'd have the exact same conversation with them. How's life in your work? How's work in insurance and sales and banking and education? And every single person, same answer. We're so busy, so busy. Why do we answer that way? Well, partly it's probably true. But also I think sometimes we wear busyness like a badge. I'm busy, don't you know? <laughs> That means I'm important. I'm doing stuff. I'm getting stuff done. And Jesus asked this somewhat funny rhetorical question in the middle of the passage. He said, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of their life? Now, actually, in the Greek, there's a lot of debate about how to translate this verse. Because there's two different ways you can translate it. And both actually make sense. One says, the one we just read, which of you, by being anxious, can add an hour to your life? Can your anxiety make you live longer? Ridiculous, right? We know not. But there's another way of reading this question, which is a little more tongue-in-cheek, and it's this. Who of you, by being anxious, can make yourself any taller? Can cause yourself to grow through your anxiety? And Jesus, I almost think it's that one, because I can see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye just kind of saying, you can't, you can't grow yourself through your anxiety. You can't make yourself any, anybody in the room wish they were just another inch taller. Anyone kind of stand on their tiptoes when they, my daughters all want to get a little bit taller, right? And Jesus is saying, which of you, by being anxious, can make yourself taller? But we're busy because we think it will accomplish so much, and yet we can't change anything, really. Another reason why we're busy, I think, is we want to be productive. Our, we believe that our worth is determined by what we produce. We live in a world where our identity is around our work. Usually the first or second thing we let somebody know about ourselves or we ask about someone else is, what do you do for work, right? It's a very important thing. And then also I think, this is a big one, sometimes we're busy because we want to live distracted lives. We want to live distracted lives. We want to make our lives noisy so that we don't have to be alone with our own thoughts. We want to make our lives full so we forget how unhappy we are apart from all the things we do, how unsatisfied we are apart from all of our responsibilities. And when we live this way, what happens? We worry. The hurried life leads to worry because we're never sure if we've done enough. And we're worried about getting to the next place. And we're worried about, and I realize that all of us live lives where there are expectations and deadlines and things that have to get done. But you can live a full life and not have a hurried heart. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And your life, for the most part, I'm not trying to speak to everyone's life because some of you have responsibilities that you're not fully in control of. But for the most part, we are as busy as we would like to be busy. We make our own decisions. We do the things that we do. And so we have to be mindful of the hurriedness of our lives, asking ourselves, have I done enough? Am I important enough? What's next? How do I prove my value, prove my worth? How do I stay busy so I don't have to think about my life? And Jesus is calling us out of that life. He's saying it will lead to so much worry and anxiety. You know, even our spiritual habits can become 
a hurried thing. Anyone relate to that? Hurry through your devotionals. Hurry through your prayer lives. Some of us even just like, when we get in front of God, finally, we carve out five minutes, we just vomit out everything we can as fast as we can, and then we walk away. And, oh, I had my time with God today. And, and whatever your time with God is like, I'm glad you have your time with God. But here's what I want to encourage you to think. What does it mean to slow down and be with God? There are a few things I've already heard from people who were here. We prayed in this space from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. yesterday. 24 hours continually, people were in this room praying. It was incredible. I've already got about 10 emails of saying, here's what it meant to me to be here and pray. But one of the, first, one of the number one things I keep hearing over and over is, I just needed to like stop for an hour. I just needed to rest. I just needed to be still, and I haven't been still in so long. When's the last time you were still in God's presence for an hour? You don't have to come before God and perform. Prayer is not performance. Prayer is presence. It's just be present with him. We're going to do this more often, maybe not the 24-hour thing, but we're going to create more times where people can come into this space and just pray. And some of you, the best thing you could do for your soul right now is to come into a space like this. Of course, it doesn't have to be this space. You can do it in other places, but there's something cool about being here. Uh, some of you, the best thing for your soul would be to come into this place for an hour and just sit and just rest and just listen and just breathe and just be present with the Father. He wants to be present with you. And so we respond by being present with him. So blurried eyes, hurried lives, and then lastly, disordered hearts. Let's finish this passage. Matthew 6, 33 and 34 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, if you've been around Trinity at all uh, for a while, you know that Matthew 6.33 was the life verse of my dad, Pastor Tom, who co-founded and planted this church with my mom, Pastor Unhee. In fact, if you're new, you might not know this, but Cafe 6.33 is named after this passage, Matthew 6.33. And this verse was my dad's life verse and really is a life verse, I believe, for this church. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. And Jesus here is saying that the number one cause of worry is you have a disordered heart. You're seeking other things first, and you have a choice. You can either worry about all the other things that you seek after, or you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as the Lord orders our hearts properly so that we can function as we were created to function, what he does is he begins to reprioritize things and give us peace, even in the midst of difficult times. And the last time I preached this passage was February 19th, 2017, I stood on this stage at my father's funeral and preached from this verse. And what I want to do to end our time together this morning is a little unique. I went back and I found those notes. And I want to read some of the, what I said that night to you because I, I started to read through it and I thought, I can't say it better than I said it that night. So why work and do it again? Why worry? <laughs> Let me just, I edited it a little bit so it will fit our setting more. But just, this will just take a few minutes. As I've been reading this verse over and over these past few days, something stood out to me, Matthew 6.33. Jesus does something brilliant. He highlights two things. The first is the most natural thing 
the most normal thing, the most inevitable thing that any of us will do in our lives, and the other is the most supernatural thing that any of us will do in this life. We have to look at the first three words, but seek first. Seek first simply means to pursue something above all other things, to give priority to something and then to build your life on it, to make it the purpose of your life, the reason for your existence. James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, says it this way, to be human means to be animated by and oriented toward some vision of the good life. Animated by, set in motion, oriented toward, directed, every single person has a vision of the good life that they're chasing and aiming at. Whatever we seek first is our vision of the good life. For some, the good life is wealth. For some, it's fame. For some, it's being respected or known. For some, it's being independent. For some, it's achieving status and significance. For many, it's acceptance and approval. Whatever it may be, it drives you and it guides you towards your vision of the good life. Your heart is aimed in that direction. Everyone seeks first something. But there's a problem. Whatever we seek first owns us, controls us, and masters us. We think we're free by choosing what we're going to seek first, but actually we're not free. In calling the audience to seek first, Jesus taps into human nature. But when he continues and says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, well, there's nothing natural about that. None of us will do that on our own. Left to ourselves, we will seek our own kingdom and our own righteousness. Seeking your own kingdom means choosing your own path and playing by your own rules. Seeking your own righteousness means trying to establish your goodness and your worth all on your own. But to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness means laying down yours. It means giving up any hope of satisfying your heart and saving your soul through your pursuit of the good life, however you may define it. What does this have to do with worry? Well, I think Jesus is teaching us that we will never be free of worry if we don't seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Why? Because when we seek other things most, even good things like the welfare of our family, we're always worried that we've not done enough, that we can't secure it, that we aren't good enough. We notice when others appear closer to that vision of the good life than we are, and, 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 and maybe we get envious or angry. We're deeply worried we'll never get there, and ultimately getting to the good life, it's all on me, my performance, my perfection, my righteousness. But the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God are completely different because both can be ours based on what someone else did, based on the goodness of someone else, based on the unchanging, undeserved, unmerited work of Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. So for followers of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the vision of the good life is the kingdom and the righteousness of God. Let me say it simpler. The vision of the good life is Jesus. Jesus then goes on to say, seek first the kingdom and the righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, what are all these things? Some people might ask, what do I get out of this? Well, it's not wealth. If you read this passage, Jesus says, don't store up treasure here. The whole passage is about don't be consumed by money. It's not health. If it was health, I wouldn't have preached this at my father's funeral. It's not power. It's not influence. It's not fame, which begins to make us wonder, is there something better? Is there something better than those things? What if all of these things that Jesus talks about includes things like this? Rest for our souls. Peace for our anxious minds. Contentment in a world that is in a race 
and real hope in any situation. This is what it looks like to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. One final thought from Matthew 6.33. If you seek other things first, whatever it is you seek, that when your day comes, I was at two funerals this weekend. We hosted one here on Friday. I, I led one for Marianne Dunsford's husband uh, yesterday. We're all going to have that moment, by the way. You know that, right? We're all headed there. When you die, you can't take your vision of the good life with you into the next life. And it won't be waiting for you there. The power, the pleasure, the control that you worried about, that you chased, that you pursued, that you were seeking first. When your time comes, it won't, you can't take it with you. And it won't be waiting there for you. But here's the exception. If your vision of the good life is Jesus, then the moment you breathe your last and open your eyes on the other side of eternity, the first thing you will see is the good life. Jesus will no longer just be a vision, an idea, a person. He will be a reality. And you'll see him. And listen, you'll have him. And he'll have you for eternity. The Apostle Paul says it this way, we see now through a glass dimly and darkly, but on that day, we will see Jesus face to face. What do we do? We seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And as we seek first the worries of this world, I'm not saying that you'll never worry again. Of course, I will all worry again. I get that. But the worries of this world begin to fade away. And we see this is the kingdom. He gets the glory, the honor, and the power. Jesus is the vision of the good life. Seek first the kingdom. Let's pray together this morning.